in Mark 11, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sent his two disciples. Quickly, the setting is that they're in Bethany of Bethphage. And uh, if you read in the Gospel of John, you'll actually read that at um, a supper where Martha and Mary were, well, both present and Lazarus also, that, that happened just prior. It says the very next day, this in John 12, it records this triumphal entry occurring. I'm only bringing that up. So it's there's good reason we already understand why um, Jesus is in this area, Bethphage and Bethany, um, Bethphage being a small hamlet of Bethany, and on the eastern side of Jerusalem. And they're coming down, well, in this triumphal entry, they're kind of, they descend and then just then descend back up into Jerusalem. But uh, in everything's kind of shifting right here because previously the last thing that happened in Jesus's ministry in the book of Mark was Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus. And many of you know about that earlier in Jesus's ministry, his, the way he, he his mode of operation, mode of ministry is that when he heals someone, he usually keeps them quiet. You, you remember the demoniac that he healed, he actually pleaded with Jesus to go along with him. And he told him, no, go into the surrounding towns and tell them all that the Lord has done for you. And of course, it says in the next verse, he went into all the surrounding villages, the Decapolis, and he told them what Jesus had done. So that is a clear uh, mark of Jesus's divinity, even in Mark's gospel, the Lord ha curios, right, being Yahweh. So, here, to go against the grain, to go against his what he had been doing up until this point, where he heals Bartimaeus, and he's crying out on the road. He's crying out, son of David, son of David, Jesus, right? Son of David, heal me or have mercy on me. And they're telling him to be quiet. And then he's like, who's calling out my name? And they bring him to him. And what do you want me to do? I'd light my sight, right? And he says, your, uh, your faith has made you well. Go your way. And it actually tells us in the last verse of chapter 10, immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus on the road. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus doesn't send him away. And it's at this point where things are shifting. Jesus doesn't mind that the entourage has come around him. And he's making his entrance now. And he knows it's, I mean, the time has come, right? And in John 6 chapter, excuse me, John chapter six, verse 15, you read, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself to be alone. And over and over again, you hear that statement made in the gospel accounts that it was not yet his hour, right? It was not yet his time. His time had not yet come. Um, essentially, it's, it's just that there was, there was a timeline that Jesus was keeping, a divine timeline. In the Old Testament, you have Daniel crying out to the Lord because he's looking at Jeremiah's prophecy about the 70, excuse me, the 70 years. He realizes that time in captivity is winding down, and he asks God, what is, what is the, the future of the nation of Israel? What's going to happen after these things? And the Lord gives David a very pointed prophecy about um, ultimate salvation because while they, they were brought into bondage, and then delivered by the Lord over and over again, brought into bondage because of their rebellion, and then 
They found deliverance through the Lord. They needed something greater than that. They needed they needed a, uh, a a salvation of their soul, right? They needed God to change them because they kept falling into this place where they need physical salvation because of their rebellion against God. And so God then talks, gives Daniel this prophecy about the 70 weeks. And most of you know that prophecy, the 70 weeks prophecy from the going forth to rebuild and restore the temple to the coming of Messiah the Prince will be um, 69 weeks, right? And then the, the last week is held for the future. I'm not going to get into that. I am a futurist. I'm assuming most of us here are, but I'm not going to get into that. But the 69 weeks, it makes this bookend on prophecy, right? And in a lot of different ways, there are there are religions, there are cults, there are sects even within inside of Christianity. There's rabbinic Judaism, and they claim to stand on the Bible as an authority, but yet they'll rip pages out of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, in order to keep their doctrine. Rabbinic Judaism is one of them, right? They don't even have a sacrificial system anymore. But one of the very, I mean, you can you can kind of debate with people about the specific days of like when did Artaxerxes give the decree to Nehemiah to rebuild and restore um, the temple and the walls of Jerusalem, right? You can debate about that. When exactly did the 173,880 days wind uh, run out? You can debate about that, whatever. The thing that you can't debate is that in Daniel 9, the prophecy given is that then, speaking of Messiah the Prince, he will be cut off before the destruction of the second temple. Before the destruction of the temple. It doesn't say the second temple. But when he speak, when Daniel receives a prophecy, there's no temple in Jerusalem. So this, the temple has to be rebuilt. The, temple's been, the first temple has been destroyed. The new temple has to be built in order for it to be destroyed after the Messiah dies. You get All these things are kind of implied. Um, well, that happened in 70 AD, right? The temple was rebuilt. The wall of Jerusalem was restored. The countdown did start. The decree given in Nehemiah, in ne which is recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2 and in, um, and in secular history. I have dates that I stick with. They're not very important. The important thing is that there's literally a bookend on this prophecy, and it has to fall within the, within the bookends. And the temple's destroyed, so the Messiah has either had to have come already, or the Old Testament's not from God. At least Daniel's prophecy is not from God. But it's it's kept within the Hebrew Scriptures. Rabbinic Jews recognize Daniel as being a divine prophecy. So all that to say that it's an awkward place they put themselves in. Either Jesus is their Messiah or they have no Messiah, right? Because no one else fits the bill. Jesus does. Uh, there's things within, I was having a conversation with a couple guys this past week at Men's Study. There's things within Islam that they deny very specific tenets uh, of the scripture. And yet they say that Muhammad came and he was the comforter prophesied by Jesus that was going to come after him, which in context we know is the Holy Spirit. Um, a lot of things that I don't really have to unpack for you, but Mormons do similar things like that. They say, well, God used to be a human on another planet who worked and then eventually was exalted so that he became a God. And now he lives on a planet that revolves around a star called Kolob where he has heavenly spiritual wives and they make spirit babies. And then he created this planet. And eventually if humans create fleshly babies, he'll send one of his, one of his spirit babies down to live inside of, I mean, this bag of flesh, right? It's very weird. Um, but yet people still follow it. All that to say that completely goes against the scripture right? Uh, a doctrine within Mormonism is that we're all pre-existent, that we're all eternal. And 
we just get given a body at some point, a, a, a physical body at some point. But yet you read in Genesis that it was God who breathed the breath of life into man and that man became, right? It was at that point that man became. He didn't exist prior to that. Jesus is the only pre-existent human. So that to say, the, the time clocks run out, right? The day, the day has come. This is Jesus' triumphal entry. He weeps over Jerusalem when he, comes in, when he comes in. He says, if only you knew the day and the hour, right? Um, at the time of your visitation, but you don't, how, how much I long to gather you together as a chick, as a hen gathers its chicks under its wings, but you wouldn't come to me. And that's, that's a quotation from Yahweh in the Old Testament. I mean, this is Jesus claiming to be Yahweh. So at this point, Jesus doesn't mind if people proclaim him openly. That's where we're at, right? Mark 11, Mark, at the end of Mark 10, they're proclaiming him openly and Jesus doesn't mind. That's what's going on with blind Bartimaeus. And now he, he's, he's, he's starting this procession. So the day before, he's, he's in Bethany. He is eating with Lazarus, Martha, Mary. He's anointed, and now he's going to have his triumphal entry. We call it the triumphal entry. Whether or not it's triumphal or not might be kind of ironic because he comes completely contrary to the way a triumphal worldly king would come, and he comes to lay down his life. So... Verse 2, he said to them, to his disciples, go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing, loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. So the bystanders, we learn, I think it's in Matthew 19, uh, the bystanders are actually the owners of the colt. This is something that Jesus set up, um, and and speaking this way to them, they immediately concede. Oh, okay. They know who they're, he's speaking about, who the disciples are speaking about, and saying um, that the Lord has need of it. But... It wasn't Jesus' donkey. Jesus didn't travel on a donkey. He traveled on foot. Jesus didn't have anything to his name, right? When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what, what thing must I do? Actually, it wasn't the rich young ruler. I think it was the same chapter that was in Mark 10. Um, as he's headed to Jerusalem, someone, uh, someone comes. Excuse me for getting the – oh, it's right here, right? It's the previous chapter. Um, anyway, you guys know the quote, uh, birds of the air have their nests, foxes have dens, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Essentially, Jesus came, he, he, he laid down his divine prerogative and he became, a, he became a lowly human and he, he took the place of a humble servant. I think that's in Mark 10. I apologize guys. Was it? Was it verse 17? Nah, maybe I've confused you. The, the point is that there was a the time that someone came to him and said that they wanted to follow him. And, and he said to them, look, like, 
we're, we're not going out to conquer the world. Um, this isn't going to be an amazing, uh, you know, all expenses paid trip. Like I'm, I've come here to minister and I, I'm not come here to accrue great wealth to myself and count the costs. Essentially, Jesus didn't have his own donkey. He went around on foot. This is, of course, contrary to the the name it, claim it, the prosperity teachers. Right. Jesus wasn't rich, but um, he, he sends his disciples out because there's something he has to do. He's making a point with this. He's, he's directly fulfilling prophecy and. Uh, he's he's also showing them like he's calling them to pay attention to and trust his words. That was kind of the emphasis of the teaching this morning. Uh, when Jesus says something, trust it. You'll find that it happens to be just as he said, right? But again, here, pay attention to and trust my words, and they and they do what he asks them to do, and um, they're they bring this they bring this donkey which it seems to be intentionally arranged this way. And it's unique in that he's going to ride this donkey into the, into the town. It's, it's unique because of who Jesus is as a, as a person, right? You read about the things that ancient Kings would do. Uh, uh, you, you take another King's donkey, you'd be kind of riding in on, uh, on, his prestige you'd be kind of be take you'd be taking something from him i'm hesitant to bring this up i'm pretty sure it was david's son when when david was out of town pitched a tent gosh i know this is this is a terrible example but it's a good example at the same time he pitched a tent on the castle i'm pretty sure was it absalom who pitched a tent and then took all of david's concubines and then slept with them to make a point like i'm taking your stuff right and but here with Jesus, he's just so contrary to all our earthly kings. Like not only does he not take another man's donkey, right? He doesn't. He doesn't take another man's. Well, it's not. It's an unbroken donkey. But it, it, he certainly doesn't do the disgusting things that we're used to kings doing and and showboating and. Oh, so anyway, um, Jesus has this. He he shows not only he's king of creation. But he shows he's so much different than the kings of this world, right? He doesn't come riding a white horse. He doesn't come in as a conqueror. And that's another point that he's making. So let's turn to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, because uh, we, we need to understand, and the Jewish people of the day would understand that this is him proclaiming uh, very distinctly to be the Messiah. This is a very direct fulfillment of prophecy, this triumphal entry on this donkey. It says in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Right? So this is about Jerusalem. Zechariah is saying, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. This is about Jerusalem, and it is saying, Listen, your king is coming to you, and this is speaking of the Messiah. He is just in having salvation. Jesus' name means Yahweh's salvation. Not only does his name mean that, but that's literally the thing that he's bringing to them. And of course, they're missing that point. They're hoping for something different. But it says, he's lowly and riding on a donkey, the, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And 
this this kind of this sums up a lot of Jesus's ministry, and you guys are aware of this. But Jesus says in the previous chapter in Mark, Mark chapter ten that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down as a ransom for many. So this this donkey imagery is very um, it 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 makes a lot. Okay, excuse me. The donkey imagery is very powerful. And the eyes of the Jews, um, not only is it a fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies very directly, and it's a statement of who Jesus is claiming to be, but it also is a, is a very strong statement about what his ministry is like, that he's humble, he's lowly, he's coming on a donkey. You see in Solomon's, Solomon, who was the initial son of David, right? Because Jesus is referred to as the son of David, or a son of David, but he is the son of David also. Solomon's uh, inaugurated riding in on a, on a donkey. So you have that precedent already set in the, um, in the Old Testament. You also have this prophecy in Genesis chapter 49 where Jacob is blessing his, his sons and his son's sons. Jacob's uh, blessing, his prophecies made over um, his sons in chapter 49 starting in verse 10. He says, to Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his in his clothes in the blood of grapes. So, um, here here we have the spe speaking of the coming of Shiloh, the Messiah, right? The, the scepter won't depart from Judah, the right to govern, reign. It's not going to depart until the Messiah comes. And to him, to the Messiah, shall be the obedience of the people. And then it makes a, a mention of this, this donkey. And this kind of, it links to Zechariah's, Zechariah's comment about the donkey and, and Jesus being the ultimate king of Judah. It's, it's kind of like it proves with this event that Jesus is claiming to be this ultimate king of Judah. Binding his, his donkey to the vine, and is the vine, I mean, it could possibly be a reference to Jerusalem um, being God's chosen vineyard. We see that in the book of I, in the book of Isaiah, excuse me. But we also see in the scripture kind of this bad rap that war horses get. Um, you guys probably are aware of this one. In Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, the psalmist writes, that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And one of the decrees that God makes about Israel when they receive kings is that the kings, for one, aren't supposed to multiply wives to themselves, and they're not supposed to multiply horses and chariots. Uh, and, and David, unfortunately, quickly forgets all of those things. But that was one of those things where the Lord's saying, look, you're going to want a king but when you have a king, he's supposed to function this way so that the surrounding nations can know that you trust in the Lord and that's where you get your victory, right? So there are other places in the scripture, Haggai, um, Isaiah, th that make reference, they kind of, they, they speak against war horses and, and, and using them as finding them, uh, finding your strength in those things. And here it's to know that the salvation or the deliverance is going to come not from the people earning it or being uh, having tremendous prowess or, or poise, but 
that their salvation is going to come from God. And this is actually another one of those. Uh, we're going to read into Psalm 118. It's a um, it's one of those Hosanna Psalms. It says it in verse nine, "Save, Lord." May the king answer us when we call. And that's important. I'm sorry I didn't mention that earlier, but that's one of those. It, it was a reference when they when they say, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they, they're throwing down their palm branches. Um, Blessed is the one who came, comes in the name of the Lord. But if we turn back to Zechariah chapter 9 and starting in verse 10, it continues with this theme about um, the not trusting in horses, right? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this is, this is again, this is the Messiah who comes in. He, he rides in, right? And, and Zechariah is um, saying, rejoice, Jerusalem, right? And, and he's saying these things because here your Messiah comes, humble, riding on a donkey, and he's he, he's going to conquer through service. Like he's he's going to conquer humbly. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He's it's incredibly ironic, right? Because in this time, in this in this age, in this culture, kings don't conquer that way. I mean, even today, unless unless you if you know Jesus intimately, right, and you you see what his ministry is about. I mean, there's I've listened to there's a a historian named. Tom Holland, and he is not the guy who plays Spider-Man. Um, but there's a historian named Tom Holland who talks about the way Jesus changed the world, and he did it by completely ironic means, right? Like he he's like he's convinced he's not a Christian, but he is convinced, and he's written book after book about how Jesus is literally the most important person in history, and he get, he goes gives so many reasons why he does he changed the world in the most ironic way possible because the way people are still trying to do it. Is, is through po- pride and prowess and and this boisterousness. And here Jesus says he's riding. He's like, okay, here's my procession. And it's not to steal anything from anyone else. I'm just completely, I'm different than all of you, right? And uh, that's where we see him. And we'll turn to back to Mark 11, verse 7. It says, they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. So this is... Um, Oh, excuse me. And in verse 8, and many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from trees and spread them on the road. So they're giving him basically the red carpet treatment. You actually read this about uh, Jehu in the Old Testament where something similar happens. They uh, put garments down in front of him when, when Jehu's um, crowned king. And and here for Jesus, of course, there's a practical covering the donkey. It's it's more practical than, than it's just the the – the clothes and the palm branches on the road where we get the, the, uh, the whole, the palm branch, the palm Sunday statement from the whole palm branches on the road. That's just this whole red cart. Like everyone's recognizing this is him. This is the guy for everyone. I say everyone. It's essentially the ones that Jesus brought with him. Right. Uh, because you, you read in, you read in other gospel accounts, specifically Matthew, that when he gets into the city, there are people are just like, what's going on? Who is this guy? Right, and they're they're informing them. Not everyone knows, and then of course you have the chief priests and the scribes winding people up. A couple days, like a week later, they're they're hiring people. They're getting crowds together to accuse Jesus. So there's obviously people who don't know who Jesus is, and this is this might be an area where 
Um, I might disagree with certain people. I'm not saying it's not true. Obviously, you have this crowd uh, desiring Jesus to be crowned king, but then you have a week later a massive crowd of people saying, kill him, crucify him, right? I don't. I, I don't think you can confidently say it was everyone in this crowd. I think you, I mean, it might be safe to say there might be a handful of people, one or two people, who knows. What I do know is that not, believe it or not, not everyone knew who Jesus was. There were massive crowds following him, but yet there was still so much going on in and around Jerusalem that people had to be told, like, who is Jesus? You read that in the other gospel accounts. And then uh, it says in verse 9, then those who went before... And those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So what you have here is you have quotes from Psalm 118. So verse, verse 9, part B, I guess. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then verse 10, part B. Those, those are both Hosanna in the highest. Those are references to Psalm 118. There is a there's a part in here where it's just a reference to them recognizing who who Jesus is. But if I'm going to turn to Psalm 118 real quick, I say real quick. Who knows? Um, in Psalm 118, he be, the psalmist begins by, "Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good; His mercy endures forever." And he's gonna he's gonna continue saying that, that's essentially the theme of this song. He's going to continue to exalt the goodness and the mercy of God. And um, he, he, he continues with, let Israel now say his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say his mercy endures forever. So this is encompassing. Like those who recognize who Yahweh is, his mercy endures toward them. Whether you're part of the house of Israel, you're part of the tribe of Levi, the priests who get to minister. Or if you're, you could be a Gentile that's, that's, that's come in and you, you have that holy, reverent fear for God. Let us all shout, amen, right? The, the, the mercy of the Lord endures forever. And the psalmist is going to continue um, through from verses 5 to 21 to talk about how the Lord and his goodness has delivered him uh, through circumstances in life. And then in verse 22, he says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day, of the Lord. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So speaking of the salvation, the way that the Lord has provided for the psalmist, he then moves into how there's a there's a ultimate salvation provided for all people, and it's it's through this chief cornerstone. Jesus in Mark 12 will talk about how in the parable of the the vineyard and uh, the vine dressers um, that he's the chief cornerstone. He's the ones being rejected, and he actually calls out the religious leaders and. And then it says that they knew that he was speaking of them, and it made them even more furious, and they wanted to kill him even more. But he's saying he's he's the chief cornerstone, and at in in this reference to this psalm, as he's coming into the the city, the the ultimate example of a chief cornerstone in that day would be the Temple of Herod, right? It's it's beautiful, it's gorgeous. Everyone comes in and they look at it. You even have. The disciples saying to Jesus, like, look at this thing. Isn't this incredible? And, and then, of course, he responds with, I'll tell you the truth. Not a stone that you see will be left standing upon one, one upon another. And how is this going to happen, right? Jesus is talking about the destruction of this temple. And then 
you read the epistle to the Corinthians from Paul, and he talks about, don't you know that you're the temple of the living God? You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which is God's, right? So Jesus is this, he is, he's still this cornerstone, right? But he's a cornerstone of a greater building. He's, he's a cornerstone of this new temple where the Holy Spirit now dwells inside of the believer. So the cornerstone is the most important stone. It's, it's set first, right? And then all the other stones are fashioned unto it to it to fit it together into a building right it there'd be a lot of emphasis placed on the cornerstone and that is uh jesus makes the point that he is that cornerstone and then in verse 25 this is where we get our hosanna statement save now it's it's uh it's like worship it's it's like a form of worship toward uh toward god right it's them showing their trust in the lord where it says save now i pray O lord I pray, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. So that, that term, that word, save now, is actually Hosanna. It's, it's kind of like the hallelujah that we, we might say. And it continues, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the reference that you see in Mark 11. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. There's so much here. I actually kind of wanted to touch on this when I was, when I was teaching this morning. But where, he, where it says God is the Lord and he has given us light, Jesus is the light of the world. And there's also a reference in Isaiah 9 talking about how light came to darkness. I'll just read the first two verses. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is in distress, as it was as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the, la, the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond in the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And you guys probably know some of the other. So that being the Messiah is the light. The Galilee of the Gentiles, not thought, it's not esteemed highly by the Jews in that culture. But that's, you know, um, the, the prophecy is written that Jesus, the Messiah, there's going to be a great light that comes out of Galilee. And, you know, the other messianic titles he's he's wonderful he's counselor he's mighty god he's everlasting father he's prince of peace um upon his shoulders the government will be upon his shoulders and it, it says all of these things will be done according uh to the zeal of the lord of hosts god's going to perform these things but back in in verse 27 excuse me for jumping all around in psalm 118 verse 27 where it says god is the lord and he has given us light it, it mentions, it kind of references his pre-existence, right? The fact that he isn't, Jesus isn't created. He is, he's given, he's sent, right? And that's said over and over again in the epistles that Jesus was sent at, at the right time. Just as God sends forth his spirit, he also sent forth his son. And then in verse 27, it says, bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. And the the altar would have these horns on it, and it was actually a place where someone in trouble could run to and grab the horns of the altar and, and plead for mercy from God. And um, it, it was, you know, if someone's caught, I mean, because we all, I don't want to be cliche or sacrilegious when I say this, but people do tend to be fairly fairly religious when they're in trouble, right? We, we tend to throw cry out for God's mercy and throw ourselves on his mercy and here, as the high priest is working, he could actually bind a sacrifice to the altar. And another really cool aspect of this is um, Jesus, 
no doubt, I want to say no doubt, I'm almost confident, sang this psalm, because this is one of the psalms, the songs of ascent, right, that were sung as the Jews were, were headed to Jerusalem during Passover. You read in the, the account of the Lord's Supper that after he was done at the supper and after he was done washing their feet and reinstituting the Lord's Supper, um, it says that after he had sang some hymns, he went out with them to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this being the Songs of Ascent were 115 through 118, this being that final psalm, you can imagine Jesus. Can you imagine how heavy that is? As Jesus is singing this, and he is the chief cornerstone. And then it's talking about the sacrifice being bound with cords to the horns of the altar. And then it continues in verse 28. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. And then, and then we have Jesus on the cross, right? How much trust? Oh, my goodness. You know? There's things that it says in the scripture that sometimes can seem just so outlandish. Uh, I'm thinking of Hebrews. I I struggle with this, right? Because the eternal one, God the Son, he's become our high priest. In Hebrews 4, if you want to turn there with me, excuse me, he's, he's become our high priest, and it makes these statements about Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews says in in chapter 4, verse 14, Seeing then, we have a high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then it it makes, I, I just sometimes, I don't know, forgive me, I Sometimes I, that doesn't connect with me. Like, God, holy, righteous, infinite, eternal. And yet he, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. If it wasn't written, I mean, could I? It's because it's not like, oh, he gets it. Like, he sympathizes. It's not like, oh, I get it. You're screwed up. It's no, like, forgive me. I'm reiterating it. He sympathizes. The eternal God, he sympathizes with a measly little human like me, like you, for, because of our weakness. And he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin, right? And again, that goes back to his trust in the Father. He truly trusted in the Father. Then this verse is so beautiful. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You have all these occurrences where where God shows up. Ezekiel 1. It's it's crazy the way Jesus is portrayed in Ezekiel 1, right? Isaiah 6 who in John 12 makes John makes very clear that it was in fact Jesus who Isaiah was seeing. You have uh, Revelation 4, right? You have the the smoke, the thunder, the angels screaming holy holy holy, you have the train that fills the throne room. And yet, we can come boldly to that throne of grace. You know, I think sometimes I, I get like the, uh, the whole Esther mentality where, um, is it Mordecai tells Esther to go in before, before her husband and, and seek mercy on be, or, or seek some way to write the law that he's decreed on behalf of the Jews. 
Um, and, and we see the way that works out. If you read through the book of Esther, I don't have time to talk about it all. But the point is, <laughs> she's, she's hoping that he'll extend his scepter to her. Because it's like, you, you don't get it. Like, I could die. And then, he, and then I think it is Mordecai. Mordecai says, uh, you know, perhaps you were raised up for such a time as this, right? And um, I think sometimes, I think perhaps, perhaps right now is not a good time to go to Jesus, you know? I, I get that, but it's it's so not true, right? If if you can humbly come to the place in your heart where you're like, I'm, I'm screwed up, and I honestly don't even want to repent of this right now, but what I know is I need him to right this ship because I can't. I can't do it myself, right? But he's given us sufficient grace. And it, it says here in verse 16 again, come boldly to the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, you think of those, those times where the Israelites were at the base of Mount Sinai, and the Lord shows up in a thunderous cloud and he speaks and they're all like, oh, Moses, go up there. Don't let him speak again. We'll all die. Right. And they wait for him to come down. And Paul writes about it. And I think it's he writes about it in one of the epistles to the Corinthians talking about how the ministry of the spirit far exceeds, far surpasses the glory that Moses had when he came back. Because some of us are often looking to our pastors to go up to the mountain, meet with God, and then bring me back something that I can just feast on for the next few days until I can come back and I can listen to you again. And and Paul's like, no. I mean, forgive me for using this statement a lot, but you're ripping yourself off if that's how you function inside Christianity. He's saying the ministry of the Spirit's better than that. And and we're being told by the author of Hebrews that is as awesome and radical as this throne is and how it's portrayed in Scripture is something that's quite terrifying it's also a throne of grace for God's children to think of the authority of that throne, right? I mean, I don't know how long it takes for you to stare point blank at the sun before it burns your eyes out. But the God who created the sun is calling you to boldly come into his throne room. It's like, I, it's just overwhelming at times. And then sometimes I think that's why it's like, hey, you know, maybe it's, Maybe it's just not the right time because I can't wrap my head around how I can actually be privileged to do that. And yet the urge is just come, just come, right? So we have, we have Jesus. He's, he's so counterintuitive to our mindset of what a king, of what a, you know, of a ruling authority is like, especially on this scale. And they're giving him the red carpet treatment, right? And, um, I actually don't know how I link those things, honestly. But if we turn back to Mark 11, speaking of how they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of um, our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It's no doubt here they're connecting this coming, right, to the rule that the son of David is going to establish on the earth which we know is Jesus' second coming. And yet what has to happen first is the cross. We all know that. We all sit on this, you know, we sit on AD side of history and we understand like the first coming was the cross. And then now we know the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, but he desires 
that all men would be saved, right? That they'd all come to a knowledge of um, the truth and, and repentance. But moving moving forward, I, I guess I kind of want to make the point that while God is using this to put a stamp on who Jesus is, right? And Jesus is making an emphatic point about it. The community that, that are that is here, that is present, they're confusing kind of what's going on. And um, a lot of the time it's our misunderstanding of what God's doing or, or just straight out not knowing that causes the greatest amount of despair in our heart, right? You definitely see that in Jesus' disciples. Like they're despaired beyond belief. And that can happen to us because there's just confusion around what is God doing? Like what, how is, but if, I guess this is just, don't, don't let it be cliche, but this is just a point where you say, if God can use the cross for something good, he can use the circumstances in your life for something good, right? And a lot of the time it's just that we might refocus our gaze upon the author and finisher, finisher of our faith, right? Who despising the shame endured the cross. And if we can do that, I think it can help us endure a lot of the difficulties we go through because there are truly difficulties. There are things that we have to deal with, but not we, we can't allow those things to bring us to despair. We need to trust Jesus, even if we don't understand what he's doing. Right? Verse 11 says, Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And so when he looked around at all, thing, at all the things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So this is a this is a weird verse. He he rides into the into uh, Jerusalem on this cult of a donkey. There's this entourage. People are proclaiming him the king, and then he goes into the temple and he just looks around. Right? You have in the beginning of this gospel, Mark using a couple references to Old Testament scriptures, and he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And that's, I mean, that's literally, that's two quotes to Yahweh, two references to Yahweh, and one using the actual name of Jehovah, right? Using the Tetragrammaton and the Old Testament reference. And Jesus was a good male Jew. He went to the temple all the time. But I think the emphasis on this temple visit in the Gospel of Mark, because there were the requirements to go to the temple yearly for the feasts, right? So we know we know Jesus obviously had been to the temple many times before this. When you have other mentions of him, even in his adult ministry, being, going to the temple and other Gospel accounts. But here, Mark emphasizing this coming of Jesus to the temple because it's, uh, it's the one, I think, that he's referencing in the, the very beginning of the, the Gospel account in chapter 1. The reference to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, Malachi says in the Old Testament, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and even the messenger of his covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness. And again, here is that that picture, right? How how are you going to stand before the Lord? Is he, is he are you going to stand before him as is he going to be your savior or your judge, right? Because you you read these 
you read these passages about God in the Old Testament, and it's so intimidating. Like this God is so holy. He's so righteous. His desire is righteousness, and he's going to accomplish that. Do we, do we view – I'm not – I'm giving a false dichotomy to, to make a point, but some people like – there's like two sides of like this legalism that we can fall into, like where God is just so holy and so righteous, and what are you doing, and why aren't you working hard enough? And we fall into this legalism, or we get like super caught up on the grace side of things, and it's like, oh, well, he's – He's just so good to us, and he's so gentle, and he's so meek, and he's so lowly. And it's so true, because he is, but yet he is a, he's a righteous judge. You know, and all this talk of, I hope I'm going to, I hope I'm going to make sense of this. My mind was all over the place this afternoon while I was trying to prepare this, so bear with me. And uh, Jesus, and all this talk of being humble, being lowly, coming on the colt, the foal, the foal of a donkey, right? You, you have him beckoning to, to everyone, really. In Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? Jesus shows up be, to the temple, and he's incredibly upset with what he sees. You're going to see him come back, and he's going to purge the temple. He's going to flip the money table, uh, the money tables over. He's going to make a whip of cords, drive out the animals. He's got, he want, you know, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer and you made it a den of thieves. He is not happy, right? But yet at the same time, what God says about himself is that he's humble and he's lowly, right? He comes on the colt, the foal of a donkey. He's so different than every other king. He de- it's not, he doesn't want you you see this so often with the health, wealth and prosperity teachers that they seem like once in a while, they actually know their Bible and they quote these verses to make these points. But then if you read them in context, it completely defeats the point they're making, but they'll quote so many scriptures because they just want you to give to their ministry. And that stuff ticks Jesus off, right? He wants, he wants sincere, holy worship and he wants people to enjoy the access they get to God. And when he sees people taking advantage of them like that, I mean, this is what, and that's right after, right? Jesus on the donkey and these people's minds, if they understood what Jesus was doing at that time, right? They thought he's coming to set up David's kingdom to rule from Jerusalem. If they understood that he was coming to die as a sacrifice, that would seem like such less importance to them. But if they understood the meaning of it. If they if they could only grasp what it was that he was actually accomplishing with his death on the cross, they'd realize it's everything. It's the whole story. Like it's the most important thing that Jesus could possibly do. And and that Jesus is the one. He's he's the righteous God that you see pop up in scripture over and over again. Because no man at any time has seen God. And that's a that's in context a reference to God the Father. So every time you see God in the scripture it's talking about God the Son, Jesus, and he's just that holy, magnificent, awesome being, and yet he says, come to me, all you labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is, this is that, that humble, lowly carpenter who rode that donkey into Jerusalem. Guys, remember in the garden, I think it's in the Gospel of Matthew, when Peter hacks off uh, the, the servant of the high priest's ear. He says, look, don't you know that 
I could ask my father for more than 12 legions of angels right now, and they'd be at my authority. But that's not how we're doing this, right? He's, I, of course, you guys know me. I, I, I quote half of the verse and how it's written, and then I paraphrase the other half. But the point is, you also see Jesus in Revelation being worshipped by 100 million angels. And then he's saying to you, come get in this yoke with me. Like, how much more could this king of kings do to prove to us that he's willing to get in the yoke with us? Then be as humble as he is, right? Because he, he could take charge of those angels and just, kill, just order everyone to be decimated, right? You have one angelic being show up. And he kills 185,000 soldiers in a night. And um, I am convinced that was Jesus. But regardless, it's an, an, it's, it's, it's an angelic being. I don't know exactly what the created angels could do. But all that to say, Jesus has command of these angels. Um, Jesus has the worship of these angels. And yet he says at his heart, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls at the core of his being. Right Again, back to this Zechariah 9.9, this, this whole triumphal entry. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation. He, he bears salvation. It's in his name. It's in his person. It is being. He's lowly. right? And he's riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So I, I apologize. I was all over the place. I think the point that I want to make through this is don't just make this another Bible study, right? When you get home tonight, fall on your face and cry out for Jesus. Tell him how much you love him and how much you need him. Because the thing is, is he's there. He's already in the yoke waiting for you to get in it with him. He wants to do life with you. I'm not trying to be sacrilegious and make Jesus something that he isn't. He is a holy God. But at the same time, he's humble, he's lowly, and he wants to forgive I don't want to sound sacrilegious. He does. He wants to do life with you. He wants you to do life with him, right? His way is better than our way. And he proves that over and over again by the way he comes, by the way he makes his statements, by the way he, he corrects the religious, um, religious elite of the day, right? And again, here, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I feel like I was all over the place, but let's pray. Father, I, uh, I pray that you spoke to these people's hearts. I pray that you were magnified in the reading of your word. I pray that I did a decent job exegeting it. Father, we love you and we want to love you more. We do trust you and we want to trust you greater. We thank you for your son and we want to know uh, we want to understand the full encompassing work of what he's done for us in, a, in a greater detail. Lord, thank you for your word, what it's revealed to us. Thank you for your spirit, for how it ministers to us. Uh, we know you'll go with us. We know you will. You promise not to leave or forsake us. Thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.